Welcome to the STEM in the Globals podcast. I'm Jessica. And I'm Maggie. And today we're here with Dr. Megan McLeod and Professor Emma Thompson. Hi, Dr. McLeod and Professor Thompson. How are you? Hi, good, thanks. Hello. <laughs> Please, can you both tell us a bit about yourselves and what you do? Uh, I'll, I'll start then. So my name's Emma Thompson. I am Professor of Infectious Diseases at the MRC Centre for Virus Research in Glasgow. And I work part of my time as a doctor in the NHS as a consultant in infectious diseases. That's about 20% of my time. And then about 80% of my time is doing research on the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID-19. And I work on other viruses as well. I've worked on a few uh, other viruses, including particularly hepatitis C and um, HIV. I've done some work on things like Ebola in the past and, and other viruses as well. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Um, I'm Megan McLeod. I'm a scientist and lecturer at the University of Glasgow. Part of my job is to run my lab and we do experiments to understand how the immune system learns about viruses and other pathogens so that you can get a better immune response when you get exposed to it again. So that's the information that you need when you give a vaccine to protect you. And then the other part of my job is to lecture to undergraduate students to teach them about the immune system and how it works. Thank you. People use the words coronavirus and COVID-19 interchangeably. What's the difference? Do you want me to take that one, Megan, or do you want to do it? Emma, you go ahead. You're the virologist. Okay, so the virus that causes the disease is called SARS-CoV-2, which is a type of coronavirus. It stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Virus 2. And the reason for the number 2 is because in 2003, there was another virus which was very similar called sars and now we've started to refer to that as SARS-CoV-1, actually. And th- these are both coronaviruses. And then the disease that they cause is called COVID-19. And the reason that there are two terms, so, I mean, it seems like a bit unnecessary, perhaps, because influenza, for example, we just call influenza virus and influenza disease. But the reason that this happened was actually because two committees met almost on the same day. And <laughs> one called the disease COVID-19 and the other called the virus SARS-CoV-2. And so the convention now is that there's a difference in the naming of the virus and the disease that it causes. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I think I understand the difference. Wait, sorry to jump in here, but like, I've never actually heard anyone call it SARS-CoV-2. So is this just something yeah, that professionals right. call it? Yeah, it's the technical term. There are lots of different types of viruses and coronaviruses are a particular family of viruses and there are lots of them. So there are two types of SARS virus, so the SARS-1 and SARS-2 viruses, and they're kind of fairly closely related. You know, they're, they're similar to each other, but there are other coronaviruses as well. So many of the common cold viruses are coronaviruses as well, and then they actually don't cause very severe illness. Oh, I didn't know that. The cold was yeah, a coronavirus. Yeah, that's right. You know, yeah, there are loads of viruses, and they don't tend to cause severe illness, like SARS-1 and SARS-CoV-2. Thank you. How long have coronaviruses existed and where did they come from? Well, I can tell you how long we think that the SARS-CoV-2 virus has existed for, which we think is about 40 or 50 years. And we think that it's existed in bats for that length of time. And it's been sort of ready to make the jump from bats into humans for obviously for many years. So this virus has been around a long time. Coronaviruses as a family have a much older root than that, you know, at least hundreds and possibly thousands of years old. 
I also noticed that you mentioned that coronaviruses can come from animals like bats, as you mentioned, and I was wondering if bats are affected in the same way as us, if they get the coronavirus, like, do they get as sick or do they experience, like, different symptoms or anything? I think the bats don't get sick. <laughs> so but bats, uh, they carry all sorts of viruses. And actually, there are a lot of dangerous viruses for humans that bats have. And if we don't interfere with the bats, there's no problem. But because we're encroaching on the territory of the bats and um, by coming into much closer contact than ever before with these animals, that's how these sort of animal transfers happen. But for the bats, the viruses are not harmful generally. There are some viruses that are harmful to bats, but the bats are all right with the coronaviruses. Um, that leads us on to Maggie's questions as she has some about the transmission from animals to humans. Hello, thanks Jessica, that was really interesting. I know you just touched on this, but could you elaborate on how a virus can pass from animals to humans? Do you want me to take that, Megan, or do you want to have a go? Um, I guess I can start by saying that viruses tend to adapt themselves to particular hosts. So they have molecules on their surfaces that they use to bind to a bat's cells in its respiratory tract or to a human's cells in its respiratory tract. And usually what happens is someone has very close contact with a bat or some other type of mammal that has a virus and it moves between them. And usually a small change has to happen in that first infected person to make that virus then good at infecting people. And so then it's more easily transmitted between different people and less likely potentially to go back into the bats or other types of mammals. Oh, that's really interesting. So what's the best way to prevent this? Hmm. Well, Megan, you go first. You're the immunologist. I, I can guess what you might say. <laughs> um, from an immunology point of view, the best way to prevent an infection is vaccination. So we prepare our bodies to recognize the virus so that you make a immediate response to it and you stop it from replicating inside your cells. We could even take a step back and say there's a, a way we could reduce the viruses from jumping between other mammals and us. And Emma may be more, have more expertise in this area to talk about controls at, for example, a livestock markets where often we see this transmission from animals to humans. Yeah, I mean, I think I would add to that, that I think that the way that we've evolved as humans is that we behave very differently than we did 100 years ago. And there are a lot of sort of natural barriers that are no longer natural barriers um, because of air travel. And so, you know, we live on an island where in the past to get to France or China or whatever, you'd have had to go on a very long journey in a boat ride and that would have prevented the transmission of viruses. And um, we know from the SARS-CoV-2 genomic sequencing data that the virus was introduced into Scotland, for example, in the first month at least 300 times. And that's almost certainly an underestimate. And that's as a result of international travel. It's almost as though those natural barriers of mountains and seas and large land masses don't exist anymore because all we have to do is to jump in a plane. And so viruses that emerge in places like China can reach Glasgow really quickly. And we've had many dangerous viruses coming to Glasgow <laughs> um, that we usually sh jump on really fast and stop. But this one was very difficult because of the route of transmission and the number of times that it entered the country. Yeah. So is this pandemic caused by anything humans do? Yeah, I think everything humans do. I think we're entirely responsible for it. <laughs> you know, travel. 
encroachment on the territory, you know, destruction of the environment, deforestation, raising the temperature of the planet. All of these things are, they're a really big deal and we need to get control of it and we need to think again about the way that we're living our lives. I mean, these things, of course, they bring great advantages and, and it's fantastic to be able to travel to another country and have that connection. And I personally do a lot of that because I work in Uganda quite a lot of the time looking for viruses that might cause problems in the future and to build capacity in Uganda for sequencing, for example, so that those viruses can be identified quickly and uh, closed down quickly if needed. But with those advantages come risks and we need to uh, manage those risks better. We need to think about um, how to perhaps reduce the amount of travel. We do have more meetings like this online. I think in a way, Mother Earth is um, creaking a bit because the result of our activities on the planet. Yeah, of course. Like, I totally agree with that. So my next set of questions relate to symptoms, and I've been hearing that some people have quite severe symptoms while others are asymptomatic. What are the symptoms of COVID-19 and why do they vary between people? Um, Emma, do you want me to start with that one? Yeah, go for it. Um, The symptoms are very varied, from some people having absolutely no symptoms at all, to some people really struggling to breathe and having to go on ventilators. And those are the individuals most at risk of dying after they've been infected with SARS-CoV-2. We don't really understand why some people have very few symptoms and some people have very bad symptoms. We know that age is a big factor in that. So younger people who are infected have fewer symptoms and are less likely to get ill. So they may have a bad cough and a temperature. Whereas older people who are infected have this movement of immune cells into their lungs, which makes it difficult for them to breathe. And maybe Emma has more of an idea than me, but I think we still don't really know what about old people triggers them to have this much more severe response to the virus. I would say, yeah, I agree totally. I mean, it's a mystery uh, in a way because other viruses can be dangerous in both extremes of age. So in very young people and in very old people. But that's not the case with this virus. It it seems to be very much more to do with being older. And and there are lots of um, sort of uh, studies looking into why if you're older, you might have a, a more of a, an intense immune response, which might make your lungs very inflamed and you less able to breathe. Some people think that it might be because old people may have been exposed to other types of coronavirus. I, I kind of mentioned before that there are other coronaviruses and that that exposure to other types of coronavirus might make people more likely to have a more reactive immune response. There are other suggestions of why this might happen, but it remains unknown, really, I think, at the moment. And um, I I think we'll find out a lot more with time. Yeah. So do we know what causes these symptoms? Yeah, Megan, you're an expert in that. So most of the symptoms are not the virus itself, but your immune response to the virus. So those less severe symptoms of coughing and sneezing are your body trying to get rid of the virus, so get it out of your body. When you have a temperature, that's molecules that the infected cells make that are there to warn the rest of your immune system about the infection. So they act to alert your immune system, but they also give you that temperature. Some people argue that the temperature uh, increase may also help to control the virus, but I think there's some some data that suggests that and uh, not everybody is convinced of that. And then the really severe symptoms, that difficulty in breathing, is this movement of loads and loads of immune cells from your blood and other parts of your body into the lungs. And because they're packed into your lungs, it makes your lungs not be able to perform their function as well. 
So you have that really uh, difficulty in breathing. And I think one of the greatest advances that we've made in the last year is that we realised that if we give medicines to dampen down the immune response, when that happens, it can save people's lives. And so we have two medicines that have been licensed for that now, and both of those are making a huge difference. And we are seeing death rates and severe illness rates going right down as a result of the implementation and availability of those medicines, as well as because of vaccination. So it sounds really weird that you want to have an immune response against the virus to protect you from the virus, but also that the immune response causes the disease and the severe symptoms that can cause death in some people. And really, the immune response is often about a balance. So you want enough of an immune response to stop the virus from replicating and increasing, but you don't want too much of an immune response that it causes this damage. So it's a little bit like Goldilocks, that you want just the right amount of immune response to protect you without causing the severe damage that leads to very sick people in hospital. Thank you. Shall now I to pass you over to Jessica? Hi again. As more and more people are vaccinated and people's immune systems become stronger, then what do you think will happen to the virus? Like, will it keep evolving and changing? That one might be mine, I guess. So, yes, I would expect to see changes in the virus genome and the way that the virus looks. So just to sort of get a bit technical, when you look at the virus particle on the BBC, uh, you see this sort of thing spinning around and then you see these projections from the surface of the virus. And those projections are protein, which is called spike protein. And that spike protein is the first thing that uh, your antibodies see. And uh, what the virus has been doing is actually changing the shape of that spike protein. And it happens randomly. And this is as part of evolution. It's, a, it's part of what Charles Darwin predicted, but he never knew about genetic sequences, that you get adaptation of viruses to their environment. And if their environment, the people who host the virus, like you and me, if we have antibodies, then the virus is going to want to change the shape of that spike protein because it's that bit that our antibodies recognize. Uh, it's actually also the bit that is recognized by T cells, which are the other really important bit of the immune system. And so the virus, just through random mutation or changes in the shape of the virus, will actually start to adapt to the immune system. Now, some people have quite similar antibody responses. If you take like 100 people in a room, a few of them will actually make responses which are really similar and that target the spike protein in, in the same kind of way. If that's happening and there's a lot of transmission of the virus, so like say those 100 people in the room are all getting infected, then the virus will actually acquire changes that change its shape to avoid those what are called public antibody responses. And so it will try to evade the immune system. And we've actually already seen this happening. So you might be aware of these new variants, which are uh, variations of the virus, which have really changed a lot. And if you think about the countries in which those viruses arose, there are countries where there was very, very high rates of transmission. So it was out of control for a while in those countries. And they arose because there was a significant amount of background immunity in the population. So people had already been exposed to it and the viruses started to change shape as a result of that. The vaccines are still working really well, but if you've had one dose, you're a little bit more susceptible to getting it. So I think we're already seeing the virus trying to fight back. Hopefully it won't manage and hopefully as well we'll maintain the blocking 
of severe illness that um, the vaccine seems to be able to prevent really, really well. All the vaccines are doing that really well at the moment. Okay, thanks. Hello again. So thank you for sharing all this information on COVID-19. And I know there are a lot of myths, and I wonder if you'd like to take a chance to debunk it, please. So do you think that the coronavirus was man-made? No. <laughs> it looks very closely related to viruses that we already knew about in bats. And it looks like it's evolved naturally through what we would call natural evolution. I can't say that it didn't escape from a laboratory, uh, but I don't think that's very likely. You know, it's harder to disprove something than to prove it, if that makes sense. So there are no signals in the virus genetic structure which would suggest that it was manufactured by humans. But I can't say that someone wasn't working on a bit of bat tissue or something and culturing it uh, and that it didn't escape from a lab. But there are a lot of reasons to think that that's not the case. So, for example, if you look at the WHO report, the reports that, that have come through are that, you know, for example, people in the Wuhan laboratory, which does work on SARS viruses, had actually all tested seronegative for the virus at the time that it emerged and so on. And you might expect that if there'd been a lab leak, that the people working in the labs might have been infected themselves. And then it doesn't look like it's been genetically engineered uh, in the way that we could play around with viruses. It doesn't have that look about it. So my feeling is no, and it almost certainly have came from the environment, but I can't prove that. You know, if some evidence came to light that it had been in the laboratory or something, then, you know, that would be something that we should look at more carefully. But I, I don't think there's been even any shred of evidence to suggest that. Yeah. And so probably not. Yeah, of course. So thank you both for taking the time out of your busy schedules to speak with us today. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks, Thanks for well, the invitation. I'm Maggie. I'm Blankus. And you've been listening to the Stand the Garbles podcast.